Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I am James Felice. I am in Kingston, New York right now, my home between tours. I play keyboard and accordion and sing, and I am in a band called the Felice Brothers. Did you think when you were busking in subway stations over a decade ago that you'd still be out here making records? I didn't think, I didn't, never thought about it. I never thought I would be this old and still be alive. I just <laughs> really, I'm not the kind of person that has like a five-year plans or 10-year plans. It's, when it started, I just sort of assumed, yeah, yeah, I would just do this forever. It's always what I feel like whenever I do something. Oh yeah, I can, I can do this. Um, but looking back on it, I'm utterly shocked, yes. Mr. Felice, six foot tall, 148 pounds, soft teeth, sleep deprived, below average student. Hey, you're tuned into the show on the road. I'm Zach Lubinton, and I'm actually recording this from a strange hotel room on the road for once. Kind of perfect timing for this song. Owner of two ill-fitting suits, wearer of hand-me-downs, often lukewarm and withdrawn bathrobe often loosely tied now i could go on and on about the poetic rock and roll that james and ian felice have created over the last decade but i think ian has enough words for all of us never once named employee of the month lover of 24-hour laundromats avoider of eye contact avoider of blood drives i bet you haven't read an awesome novel in a while well you could just listen to the Fleece Brothers' new record, From Dreams to Dust. I think it does the trick. Worked every nightclub in America, had a fear of falling pianos, now exists in the interval between being an illusion in the saddle of a phosphorus horse, a patron of snow cone carts, semi-proficient at long division, once spent over two months stuck in a painting by Bruegel. I'll tell you this. Listening to the Felice Brothers' new record from start to finish, and then going on tour with my group Dust Bowl Revival for the first time in almost two years, it's kind of made me question my mortality. My knees are creaking as I go downstairs. My voice, you can hear it, it's giving out after a big show. And yet, it's two in the morning, and there's nothing I'd rather be doing than listening to this music with you right now. I hope you enjoy it. To his son, he leaves a cloudless sky. One pair of ill-fitting shoes To his wife, a box of undeveloped negatives And a bowl of onion soup From dreams to dust I remember listening to you in college um, in Michigan, obviously that self-titled record, which I think is what, 2008? Uh, yeah. When that came out. 
that has a lot of love still, I think, in the Americana Roots community. But the new record feels like it's talking back to that first record. Mm. It's like you're almost like having conversations with your younger selves saying like, look, the world feels like it's maybe ending now, <laughs> but we're going to be okay if we can just keep the party going in some way. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it like that. We definitely try to ignore our old records as much as possible. Like I know that Ian's actually never literally never heard any of the songs off of <laughs> any of the records I don't think bang 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 when Frankie's gone he shot me I guess, but yeah, I guess in the way that the, yeah, the record is in conversation with the people that we are. It has to be, and and we are, you know, we've been doing this for so long, and 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 it's been such a humongous part of our lives that it must be so. Walk us through the uh, personnel of the group right now. I know uh, Ian, you know, is the main vocalist, plays guitar uh, and some keys. You're playing accordion, but you also have um, some new folks who are really making this record come to life. Yeah, we have um, Jessica Hume on the bass. She played bass on our last record, too, on Andres. Um, she, so she joined the band like three years ago. And then we have William Lawrence playing drums, and he's been in the band for, I guess, like five years now. Uh, um, and so, yeah, that's it. It's just the four of us now making music and it feels really good they're really talented great musicians just great he's a great drummer she's a great bass player they're both great musicians otherwise singers and they're just really into doing what they do and it's just so beautiful it's so wonderful to work with them i just got off the road with them we've been on the road for the last two weeks and they're also great to tour with now folks who are familiar with you remember that you recorded your self-titled record in a chicken coop of some sort this is true. Not like it sounds like that, but there's this very uh, down and dirty, rustic feel to it. This mm -hmm. record uh, was recorded in a church in Harlemville, New York. Um, and you had some amazing folks like Mike Mogus um, come in and help mix it. Um, do you let the surrounding space where you record sort of inhabit the songs? Is it like a an extra character in the room? singing and performing definitely it has to be you know we're, we the room just because the way we record is often live you know so we just set up some mics and do our thing so the room is a huge part of that the room is definitely a character and, and we record most of our records in different spaces and i think each record has its own sort of unique sonic signature whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i think this one is nice i think the church sounds really great Silver fish in my soap dish, perfectly designed to be unpleasant to find. Garden ants, the size of graduates. My, how you have grown. Um, but then, yeah, then I did get Mike Mogus to mix the thing, which made it sound more professional you know i did most of the engineering not all of it but a lot of it and uh, i'm not you know i'm no 
I'm not a great engineer at all. Um, but I wanted it to sound good. I thought I wanted to do justice to the space because I think yeah, the coupe uh, <laughs> it, it was not a good sounding room. It was a chick. It was a cinder block building. Sometimes the limitations can create great things, right? I remember hearing um, there's a podcast where Ben Folds was talking about his Ben Folds Five record that still is like so beloved worldwide, and he recorded it in like this shitty one bedroom house that he had his dad, who's a construction foreman, try to soundproof, but really he just made it into like this tomb where you could only hear like slap back from every direction inside <laughs> and you couldn't hear what was happening outside. Like there was a hurricane literally happening around them in North Carolina and they couldn't hear it. All they could hear is their own reflection bouncing off every angle of the house. And it was just like a total nightmare, but they had to simplify and kind of just like really hone in on the song. So you could understand what they were saying, <laughs> you know, 6 a.m. day after Christmas I throw some clothes on in the dark The smell of cold, car seat is freezing The world is sleeping, I am numb. Yeah, yeah, we've been in the same situation. You have these, sometimes you have grand ideas for songs and you start playing them in a particular room and you realize right away, like this does not sound good at all. We better, we better pair this back. I just better make sure that the writing is good enough that even if the song doesn't sound that good, that the writing and the performances will carry it through. One thing that you guys do really well, which I've actually tried to steal with my band Dust Bowl Revival uh, through the years, and I've referenced some of your songs as like the example of cathartic group singing that doesn't sound fake or contrived like it actually sounds like people really feeling something and shouting it to the rooftops yeah. and oftentimes when we as a seven piece band with horn section try to do that we sound like an angry mob with pitchforks like walking down the street <laughs> and we've recorded in some beautiful studios and sometimes even on our last record we had like seven, eight different ladies come in to kind of make this sort of homespun choir. And even with the doubling, tripling of eight, nine people singing, it sounded like small and kind of weak. Interesting. And that sometimes you have to only have your brothers, you know, <laughs> two or three people shouting as one. And it sounds huge and awesome. You know, sometimes we have to learn, like, we don't need more. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And in the day, in the age of, I, I become guilty of this too. If I'm left to my own devices, I'll sing, you know, like 20 tracks of harmonies on something. Cause I, I love that stuff. But yeah, we started doing the group harm thing, like the group vocal, we call them the sailors, it's like bringing the sailors for this song. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. On the first record on self-titled, I remember just bringing in like some friends we had to just sort of sing loud in the room. And, but it's right. There's a, there's a balance to it. Cause we've done it sometimes. And it doesn't work. It sounds angry or, fake or or it does sound weirdly small in a way that's not is not what you want you want to sound big and alive and electric um yeah it's hard to explain it is hard to explain and it's hard to do right and I, I, yeah because i've done it wrong a lot 
And there is something about it. It's the right combination of people. It's the right room, honestly, the right way of seeing the microphone is like a big thing. I think if you're too close to it, it gets, it doesn't seem right. It has to, there has to be space between you and it has to feel like you're in the room a lot more. Anyway, there's a lot to it. I think um, this trial and error, but yeah, yeah. We like doing that though. We like it when we get away with it. It's pretty fun. I feel like I've had five or six different sister groups on this podcast in our 103 episodes, but I rarely have brother groups. Hmm. And I think there is a different element there, but there is something about the cadence and the genetics of people's vocals that lock in yeah, in the airway. You know, it's like they somehow do that. What is it like singing with Ian? It's, it's challenging. Um, you know, he's, he, his, uh, his, his delivery is always different <laughs> every right. time we sing the songs. So I try to stick with him on that in that way. So yeah, we're not like a super locked in, like some, uh, who was I listening to the, the staves is that, is that the band? I yeah. Was? They're badass singers. Um, so ours is a little more loose, but we are brothers. So I think we do get away with it a little bit more. Um, He's a great singer. He really is. He has a really awesome delivery and awesome way of singing. And I just try to help, you know, bring it out a little bit more. Um, I love singing harmony. It's something I've worked a lot on in my life, trying to get decent at it. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, I I think just trying to keep up with Ian and trying not to step on him is pretty pretty important to me. Well, that opening track of the new record... (laughs) It's funny because I heard it on the radio driving on a tour. Um, I thought it was like a Warren Zevon track that was unearthed somewhere, like in the Werewolves of London sessions or something. You know, I'm like, no, shit, this just came out now. And look, your brother has a very specific, unreliable narrator singing style. Yeah. yeah. You know, like he's coming out of some off-Broadway play and telling you the story of these bizarre people at the end of the world. Um, I can imagine how difficult it is to try to harmonize with that at times. Um, But that jazz on the Audubon track, (laughs) I think felt like a synthesis of a lot of the whirlwind nightmare that we were experiencing in the last year and a half. Um, The end of the world sounds like final jeopardy, you know, like it is this chiming anticipatory limbo, you know, where we're waiting to know, do we have the answer? Right, right, right. right. (laughs) You're like, can you tell me what is happening here? And you don't actually ever know what's happening. That's the whole point of our limbo state. Yes. And it's almost like the chorus. Yeah, the chorus is a little anticlimactic. The the point of the song is not the choruses, right? It's almost like the verses are the highlights. The actual, like, the crazy uh, imagery that he's spitting is what you come for. And the choruses are just, like, sort of a break from that. You know, the end of the world, the end is nigh is a recurring theme. And everybody thinks it's going to look different, depending on where you're from and what area you live in and who your friends are. Shareholders will be orbiting the Earth, man. 
Is this song a hit in Germany? I hope so. You know, I haven't <laughs> any day now. I, you know, I would love to have a hit in Germany. I would love to be huge in Germany or anywhere, really. I'll take Germany, though, for sure. And you've toured uh, as long as you guys have. And then you go through something like we just did with this pandemic. Um, and now you're back out there for the first time, probably in what, a year and a half or so. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel different on stage? Do you feel more appreciative that you can still do this? Or is it like a little scary that you're surrounded by people who may or may not be carrying a pathogen that could kill us all? Kill us all? <laughs> I was surprised. I think like the first, the first show, which was like a little show we played in Connecticut and Hamden at the space ballroom. I don't know if you've ever played there. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that was our first show in a year and a half. And that one felt really strange. Not a bad way. It's like, Whoa. But then the second show we played in New York, I was back at it. And then every show subsequently is like, we never, never missed a beat. Uh, it's, it's actually remarkable. I was thinking about it the other day, like how normal it seems, how right. not being on the road was the weird thing. Spending yeah. months at home, was bizarre playing a show in san francisco and then la and driving and like that's the that's the normal part of my life i've been doing that since i was 20 15 16 years Going back to that self-titled record, I remember I saved that song Love Me Tenderly like in a specific playlist that keeps coming around in my life. You're talking about sort of preserving these little items that are important to you and that maybe you can present to this person that you love. You know, a bottle of gin, a typewriter, a violin, hoping that this person will like you if you can give them the exact combination <laughs> of things right, right yeah. and then and then that group singing which i mentioned before it's very subtle right like you could feel like you guys are in the back behind ian yeah and it just blends in a way that again is so hard to do when you're on stage how do you try to blend your vocals when ian is going off the reservation every other song <laughs> <laughs> um at, at this point, you know, a lot of it's in the hands of the engineer and we don't really travel with an engineer. So, you know, that sometimes, it, you know, if, if our vocals are too loud and the blend isn't right, but we really try Ian or sorry, Jess and Will and myself to capture that energy. I think that's like the main thing. If the blend isn't right, at least the energy can be right. At least we're trying to sing the right notes. We're trying to get the feeling across. And we play like a song like that, like a song like everybody in the audience knows, then they're singing along.
a gambling ring I lost my diamond watch But in the parking lot I took it back again Oh man, you got to understand She loves me Will and Jess are singing the, the counter melody. I had an electric blanket as a kid. And everybody else in the room, including Ian, is singing the other part. And so it's awesome. They're doing all the work to make it sound really good, um, which is what's so cool about having old songs that people know inside and out. And your other brother who left the band um, is an author, right? Yeah. Yeah, among other things, he's an author. He's written a couple novels. Because there's a, there's a very uh, literary bent to some of your work that is not super easy to just like dive into right away, right? I and mean, a lot of the <laughs> reviews of this new record keep saying the same word. It's extremely dense, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's hard, unless you really know the song, to basically start singing along to things that don't rhyme, that yeah. don't have really any pattern mm-hmm. right when a song starts for you guys is it something that ian comes to you with a lyric batch and then you kind of try to parse it out piece by piece like how does the song start it depends on the song with this one i think he came and so i think that was sort of the part of the challenge was making sure that under no circumstances do we uh drift into anything too spoken wordy to like slam poetry <laughs> style and keeping it true to the sort of the aesthetic of the band. Well, that, I mean, look, there's a lot of uh, morbid humor throughout the songwriting. Um, the song be at rest, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you're actually sort of mourning yourself or like, you know, Ian is remembering himself at his own funeral type thing, you know, saying that, well, he had soft teeth and he was sleep deprived and he was a below average student and he had two ill-footing suits and he wore a lot of hand-me-downs and he yeah. had this bathrobe that was loosely tied. You know, <laughs> these tiny items that are listed that create a life, that create his sort of personality in the world. Um, if you were to throw your own funeral what would be the song that you would play as like it began like if you could choose any song any song oh my god throughout history be like okay everyone's gonna sit down and start honoring james this is the song that has to come on oh man you know i've literally never thought about that i never thought about my own funeral as a as such or at least not like the logistics of it um I don't know. I think if it was my funeral, I would put something on that was more like background music because I would want people to talk to each other rather than focus on whatever the casket situation is in the front of the room. I think, um, yeah, I think my funeral would hopefully be like the arrest, not spoken from a lectern, but people saying those things to each other about me, you know, hopefully some nice things too but um, given a fair assessment of the man that was. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'd have to actually really think about that because I'd want to get it right if I did choose a song. I'd want to get that right. I guess I should come up with one and do my will. Oh, 
Our dog, our dog agrees. Yes, he does. All right. I mean, you could ironically have like smooth jazz in the background, <laughs> like something really painfully bad. Yeah. And then be right. like, is this really what he wanted? All right. That's right. Yeah, the pop music they play at like gas stations in Oklahoma. <laughs> that, that might be appropriate. Christian rock. I don't know. Maybe I should choose something I really hated. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, not like Ian or you really thought about this, but there's, in my mind, almost like a sci-fi element to some of these songs, like the the like the land of yesterdays. Right. That mm. sounds like something that Walt Disney would create in a mm. post-apocalyptic <laughs> California, you know, he had Tomorrowland. Yes, right. That's right. But like the land of yesterdays would be like the black mirror alternate universe version where we, we walk through every moment of our life that we regretted and wish we could do again or something. <laughs> I actually did think of it like that, believe it or not. When we were making that song, I was like, it almost is like a, I don't think I thought Alt Disneyland, but that's a good way to put it. Like a like a ride, like a sad yeah. little ride you would go on that would yes, just take you through. You know, I even thought like Citizen Kane because the middle passage. Um, you know, when he's remembering his his childhood when he gets taken to the orphanage. Um, is it the scene where he's like looking into like that snow globe? Right. You know, I had a lot of imagery like that in my mind when we were making it. But yeah, it is it is like a sci-fi. The messed up Disneyland running blindly after neon trains in the land of yesterday's the moon like fire in the horse's manes there you go or it could be like Westworld right where where we've become uh, desensitized to the violence of (laughs) life and we want to like we want to experience something that like we're not allowed to experience like the purge or something you know (laughs) Yeah, and looking, you know, having that sort of weird nostalgia for the land of yet, for, you know, you know, I think a lot of that's in sort of the kind of music that we all write is that nostalgia for whatever it is, like Western expansion times or, but also acknowledging those are not good times for anybody. The chasing after neon trains is a good line for that, I think, sort of just combining our desire to crawl back into our past, but you can never return. A little kid come on in from the cold Your father is sick and your things must be sold An orphanage sits in the snow Of a winner you lost long ago If you were not making music, if you hadn't found an audience with this very specific type of songwriting and brotherly writing. What do you think you'd be doing right now? I would probably be, um, I would be doing tree work. I think that's what I did during the pandemic. Um, I'd, I'd probably go to go to, uh, work for an arborist and then buy my own truck eventually. And, uh, yeah, cut down trees, clear land, stuff like that. I'm, you know, the sort of, I enjoy doing that kind of stuff and it pays pretty well. So that's probably what I would do. I hope that never happens. I'm knocking on wood again because it's really hard work. But yeah, that's sort of what I would be doing. It's good to have some sort of a backup plan. 
yeah, I got two chainsaws and I got, you know, some skills. I can drop a tree. I can obviously make firewood and stuff like that. I would love to learn like climbing, get a bucket truck, stuff like that. There's a lot of work like that around here where I live. Um, yeah, that'd be my, that'd be my life, which wouldn't be a bad life at all. How far are you from Woodstock? 20 minutes. It is an interesting vortex of American music history in that area. There's something about that area that creates this specific type of American roots music, even like Van Morrison and the stuff he created, you know, he's an Irish guy, but he lived in this little green area of New York and created something that lasts that feels like um, timeless in a way. Mm. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the space. I think it's, yeah, it's the proximity to the city. It's that there's millions and millions of people down there. Um, the, some of the most talented people who have ever lived and the Catskills are, is an hour and a half, two hour drive away. And that's it. And it's way, or was way cheaper up here and you could escape and so, yeah, Van Morrison comes up here, but he's he's an Irishman, but there's probably like three or four New Yorkers he's working with, you know, guys that came up here to open a studio or to get away. Some of the best musicians, session musicians, everywhere you go, there's like some legendary, incredible session musician or a producer engineer. And I think it's because people go to the city to make it they're the best of the best and they realize the city sucks. And then they come up here at some point. There's a song off your uh, Undress record. Um, from 2019 called Hometown Hero, which I also love. Um, that feels much more like a rustic, almost sea shanty, you know, Cordy and the banjo about this person sort of coming out of the penitentiary and seeing his small town again and wondering how it's all gonna <laughs> go. Um, right. Like when you come home from a long tour, does it sometimes feel like you're <laughs> like you have to like reintroduce yourself to like your life. Sometimes I feel like that. Oh yeah, for sure. I think from a long tour, especially if you're overseas, I, that feeling. And it's always, it's always been like sort of the same time of year, which is like this time of year, always gone for like a month or two months over the summer. And then we come back often October or November. And yeah, you want to like stride, stride through the streets being like, I'm back y'all. Of course, nobody noticed you were gone in the first place. And right. maybe bartender but um and you gotta reintroduce yourself i always i love that feeling i love coming home and settling back into my ways and i'm just a creature of habit like i get you know i, I do this i go for a walk every morning and go to get a cup of coffee at the same spot you know i just do the same stuff and i love that routine um something that's really important to me especially and, you know, I, and i really locked in that routine during the pandemic but um yeah, coming home. I think that song "Hometown Hero" is is sort of that feeling. You know, it's it's also just about like so many guys I grew up with, people that are really our hometown heroes. Everybody loves them. They're flawed characters, never gone anywhere, they never really did anything, and some of them got into some trouble. But they really are like the heart and soul of a lot of these towns and places where I grew up.
you play football or any sports growing up? No, I played a little baseball. I wasn't, my mom wouldn't let me play football. Everybody wanted me to, but she, she wasn't into it. And uh, I think I thank her for that now. I would have gotten beat up pretty good. Um, so no, I played baseball and I did like, I threw shot put one year. That was really terrible at. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start playing the accordion? Uh, I started playing the accordion right when the band started. You know, we'd all sort of, I played piano and then, but, everybody, but we all played acoustic guitar. So it was me and Ian and my brother Simon. Uh, and we were all just like songwriter guitar guys, which was stupid. We all knew it at the time. And Ian was the best guitar player. So Simon started playing the drum. And then a friend of mine had an accordion. She just like let me borrow it. And I started playing that. And that's you know, when we were busking. So I played accordion. Simon would play like a snare drum. And Ian would play guitar. And that was like our setup. And then uh we went from there but yeah i just it was just out of necessity really so i had something to play what did your folks do when you were growing up um if i was a carpenter and my mom stayed home um for most of my childhood there was four kids at home um and then she became a, a bus driver like like when i was like i think 16 or 17 and you toured around in that kind of short bus situation for a while right yeah yes we did we had a short bus. We had a long, we had a full-size bus for a minute, which never really went anywhere. We took it for like one drive. It was super sketchy. So we parked it at the place we were living at and it sort of became like a bedroom and eventually an eyesore. And eventually it was towed away. Um, and, and then after the short bus, we got a Winnebago. That was like our main jump. We bought like a, pretty much like a new Winnebago or it had like 20,000 miles on it. It was pretty nice way nicer than we deserved and we proceeded to beat the crap out of it over the next eight years did you sleep inside it like you didn't have to go anywhere else yeah i literally lived in it for like three years on tour and off tour oh wow i was always waking up in the same bed no matter where i was in the country um and yeah then we, we eventually put bunk beds in it so we had you know we had like six seven eight guys in there uh we had a trailer it was fun it was really gross and shockingly dangerous, but it was fun. <laughs> Why was it so dangerous? Just because you're young idiots, sleep deprived, driving a, it's just a big cardboard box really down the highway. You know, and we would just, we would do things like drive all night just because why not? You know, we would just drive all the way across the country in like three days, just stuff like Ooh. that. Stuff you're not really supposed to do. Stuff I would never do now. When I look back at my first few tours, and I haven't been doing it as long as you, but we've been pretty much going full tilt since like 2009, 10. Now, maybe more like 11. But the first few runs where you just thought you could play 15 shows in 16 days or something, you know? And you're like, well, we might as well, otherwise we're going to lose all this money, you know? Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, like you should take a couple days off here and there so you can vocally not like kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, you can put on that's we learned that lesson. You got to be able to put on a good show. You're not doing yourself any favors by putting like playing 15 shows and 14 of them suck. Like it's it's not it's, it's not smart. It's stupid. It's macho bullshit that I think I got we did the same thing got sucked into the same thing we could play anywhere man yeah we'll drive all night to play this like tiny little place and then drive all night again to get to Boise or whatever it's just so dumb it's and it's dangerous driving you know I 
Driving is the most dangerous thing any of us will ever do. We do a lot of it. And I really try to be so careful now about that because I just, it's, it's just, it's not worth it. I'm so excited to introduce you Sleep is very important. And we make sure that we always can get eight hours, try to get at least eight hours for the whole band every night. And, you know, getting older. I'm not sure if you've heard this song in a long time, but I somehow fell into the tune Honda Civic from the Celebration <laughs> Florida uh, record 2011. Um, it's like some sort of weird, like Broadway outtake or something, you know, where. You know, you have the accordion and the horn section, but then it's like there's this kind of like jagged, like it's in rent or something, like very showy. <laughs> like there's a confrontation at the Wonder Bread warehouse. There's mass confusion on the interstate. You know, wow. yes, I vaguely like. <laughs> and my wife drives a Honda Civic and made me laugh. You know, do you bring back songs from your older catalog? And how do you choose which ones to bring back is my question. That's a good question. That, yeah, we haven't played that song in a long time and we probably never will. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we have like these like sort of songs from the old catalog that we've just been playing for like Love Me Tenderly or whatever that we just playing for years and people love them. So we just do them for that reason. I think we play old songs, you know, not for ourselves, but for, yeah, you know, just, you know, whatever. That's just how it works. Ian is... Almost always hates all of his old songs. He's like very much against it. But I'll put a petition in. Like we started playing the song Lion that we hadn't played in like five or six years on this run, which is really fun. Um, some songs that I really want to play, he just he's like, I can't remember the lyrics and I'm not going to learn. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and that's a lot of lyrics to learn. It's a lot of, you know, the guy writes a lot of lyrics. I, I get it. I can barely remember my three songs. And, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Honda Civic, that was a weird one. We were we were really <laughs> we made that record. We were at a high school. That record was made in a in Beacon High School. We had like a auditor we had like the gym. It was made in the gym of the Beacon High School. One, two, three kids, the handsome ones in showbiz. I've always been sort of a hot shot from Florida. and I lived there in that it was like it was abandoned it had like a couple like people like had offices there or whatever. There's like a metalsmith and like a baker downstairs. And we had like three rooms and the auditorium and the gymnasium. 
you know, these got weird in there for months and that's what we made. Uh, <laughs> I know, but like the weirder, <laughs> the weirder songs, I think, feel like I'm dropped into a very spooky part of Ian's brain, you know, mm-hmm. where things are firing in all directions and, uh, like I kind of want to know, like what happened at the Wonder Bread Warehouse. Like, can right? Yeah. Elaborate. It's a great story. It's race, 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 and pivot. I can do that in a Honda Civic. What's the lyrics? They're so funny. We love Hondas in this family. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That that yeah. I actually literally probably haven't heard that song in ten years. Was there a specific drive or a storm out on the highway? something that happened where you actually thought you may die getting mm-hmm. to a show. We've all had at least one of those at this point. There was one, we were driving up the mountain, a mountain in Vermont in the winter time going and snow. And I remember hitting the brakes up a hill an incline and the fucking trailer drifting back, you know, into traffic behind us off the cliff and I don't know how we got saved, but we we managed to right ourselves. You know, it's, a, it's like a 28-foot Winnebago and then another 12 feet of trailer and just careening into the abyss. Um, that kind of stuff happened kind of a lot. We used to get that thing stuck. We used to crack, just drive into stuff all the time. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, yeah, that, was, that was a bad one. There's been a few... There's been a few. One time when we first got it, I was sleeping for this, but took the stupid somebody took the thing on the FDR drive in New York City. Uh-huh. It has a nine foot clearance in the in the Winnebago's ten foot, and drove under one of those underpasses and ripped the the air conditioning unit off the top of it, blew it apart. Oh my god! And that we were playing Radio City the next day. We were opening for Bright Eyes, like our first tour. It was a long time ago. I remember we drove up to Radio City. It's a union gig. So there's like you know eight union guys on the sidewalk waiting for us. We were late, of course, and uh, just pieces of the compressor falling off the side of the thing. And you know, it was like you know, if it had been a foot lower, it would have definitely would have killed my brother Ian because he slept in the loft. And it was really dumb. Uh, so yeah, dumb stuff like that all the time. And then you played Radio City Musical. Then we played Radio City Musical to great acclaim. It's quite the juxtaposition. That's what it is, man. Sometimes, like Tori is like that, right? You, you're just gross. You're like wiping yourself down in a Starbucks bathroom, trying not to stink up the place, hungover, and then, yeah, you walk into Radio City Music Hall the next day, or Beacon Theater, or any number of amazing venues, playing for beautiful, incredible people every night, and they just don't even know how. <laughs> Braved you are how much your lifestyle it's just disgusting some hop on board some wave farewell or weep at the beauty of the crossing but we all shall live again I've been in most of these motels on the edge of reality I even rode my donkey o'er the mountains of Argentina. 
How long have you known uh, Connor and the Bright Eyes crew? That's a long time now, right? Yeah, since that tour. So 14 years, 13 years. We've been really good friends. Yeah. I just saw Walcott, Nate Walcott from Bright Eyes. Uh, he came to our show in LA uh, like three days ago. Could hang out with him. That was really nice. That's interesting because he, I think, is another example of someone who's forged his own path connecting roots music, folk music, but with this rock and roll spirit Mm. and has been able to cross over into, I guess you could say the pop world, but, um, and obviously his connection with Phoebe Bridgers and, and, and those folks, um, I wish more (laughs) of the Americana scene that we're in would do that, you know, Mm. because a lot of times, um, we're sort of relegated into this side room of the of the main palace that is music. We're like, yeah, it's you know, kind of jangly, uh, acoustic country for liberals. You know, <laughs> like that's not really what we're doing here. We're writing kick-ass songs. You know. Well, I guess the best that I can do now is pretend that I've done nothing wrong and dream about a train. How do you think, like, this music, music that, you know, people have written is kind of experimental, what this new record is, how does that get appreciated on a wider scale? That's a good question. I do not know the answer to that. If I did, I would I would try to, try to actualize it. Because I, I think... I mean, yeah, I know for us, for my my band, I know that the songwriting is as good as it gets. And I know that um, we're a good band and the music's definitely worth listening to. And everybody that listens to us seems to really dig it. Um, but there is like a, there's a, there's a stigma or that's not stigma. It's just like people don't necessarily want to hear the acoustic guitar or the banjo. I don't know. They don't, when they hear those things, it automatically brings their mind into a very specific place. And I think for a lot of like younger people, they just like they're over it. Maybe I think when we were young, it was exciting and new when you heard like Bob Dylan for the first time and then trying to sort of not recreate that music, but being inspired by that music. And it, there was like a crest of interest and resurgence of folk Americana music, whatever you call it in the mid mid two thousands, right? Like in the 2006, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, but I think that has crested and is, has waned for some, for whatever reason. Um, and now I think it's just about trying to just write the best possible songs, play the best possible music you can be kind and conscientious and people will come. I think people will listen eventually. Situations officially scary. I smoke cigarettes by my grandma's grave. I mix more medications than mixed martial arts fans live in basements. I talk shit when I'm afraid. Well, if you just listen on a surface level to a song like Blow Him Apart on the new record. <laughs> 
you got the brushes, you got sort of this hushed pedal steel and the piano. It feels like it could be like a gentle country song, mm. but with very <laughs> uh, morbid subject matter. You know? Yeah. Like it's almost like the soundtrack to a horror film. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's that's one of the fun things is sort of like delivering using the music as a pill as the coding to deliver of, of this pill of like strangeness or you know for that song i i wrote that one and i i don't know for me if i felt like one of the most honest songs i'd ever written sort of about myself it's almost like autobiographical in a way um and it is kind of weird and scary and and silly and maybe a little f- funny or something um <laughs> But yeah, I love that. I love that juxtaposition between a, a bizarre concept and a and a easy listening moment. And I watched you burn him alive. He just looked amazed. They'll be washing that boy's pride. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it almost reminds me of a Chris Isaac like Wicked Game or some sort of like <laughs> this sort of very sensual delivery, but mm-hmm. gonna blow him apart. And we're gonna apart. find pieces of his body out on the road. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's let's go out with uh, a song from the new record. Um, it's just out, I think, last week or so, right? So it's yeah. brand new. Um, give me a little uh, intro for Valium. Valium, I love this song. Um, another sort of talking poetry, Western decline, fantasy, almost like No Country for Old Men sort of side of the road, El Paso motel vibe in my opinion um and then like a really beautiful chorus some lovely harmonies uh, i love this song actually it's fun to play live too which i've discovered over the last couple weeks a little valium for the national consciousness here it is now all right man well thanks so much for getting on with me that was really fun thank you so much i'm sitting here flipping through the channel presidential debate a split second later, a picture-perfect dinner emerges from an oven. Yeah, that rattlesnake never stood a chance against the likes of Annie Oakley. silent to sleep so I'm standing now in the dust of the road contemplating heaven I'm 
must have been lost on some kind of excursion up the Colorado. I think her name was Marilyn, but I don't remember anything else about her, except that her hair smelled of gunpowder. That's it for tonight. Signing off. Signing off. There you have it. Big thanks to James Felice for talking to me. You can go to thefelicebrothers.com for their newest record, From Dreams to Dust. Sorry, my voice sounds a little crispy right now. Um, I'm on a little tour with my band Dust Bowl Revival. Uh, If you're in Massachusetts or New Hampshire or New York City or Washington, D.C., we're going to be playing all over this week. Please check it out. The last long tour we're going to do for a long time. If you happen to dig this podcast, please leave a cool review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really means a lot, and it lets me know which episodes are working. Coming up next, we're going to have a conversation with the folk star Hayes Carl, and I'm going to be talking to Grammy winner Keb Moe very soon as well. And be sure to support all the other amazing podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation page, like Toy Heart with Tom Power and Harmonics with Beth Bears. As always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton. Sorry for the song quality this week. I'm in a hotel room in the middle of Connecticut somewhere, but I'll be back home in L.A. making some brand new episodes very soon. Okay, that's it for me. The show on the road.com for all episodes. We'll see you on the trail. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.